Well, welcome here, everyone. Good to be here with you today, and a special welcome to those of you gathered at Mosaic. And uh, we're in the last weekend of our teaching series that we're calling uh, Refresh. And in this series, we've been kind of looking at the different fears and anxieties and worries of Canadians today and uh, kind of understanding and discovering along the way practical steps of how to deal with anxiety and really looking at worry in light of the scriptures and discovering together how this faith that we have that promises again and again that we can live beyond uh, fears in this world. And so uh, today we're going to discover through God's word really how to overcome the fear of failure uh, by finding courage, hope, and refreshment in Christ. So as we come to God's word, let's uh, open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are present here with us today, and we invite you to come now and to teach us your ways that we might walk in the fullness of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't know, if you, have you ever heard these words uh, from someone or maybe even just your own kind of internal dialogue? Um, I'm afraid to try. You will fail. It will never work. You don't have what it takes. Man, you're going to flunk. You'll fail again. That's a stupid idea. Don't even try. Give up. Well, my bet is in our space today here and at Mosaic, there are many of us who are going through a crisis of the moment that has told you, this is why you're a failure. This is why you're not a success. And it's a position that's been taken, maybe not because of your own doing, but simply because of maybe the cutbacks, the economy, or the the job that you're at just disappeared and it's left you where you're at. It's applying for jobs that are way beneath your skill level or expertise and coming up denied and that feeling again and again is like, I'm just not good enough. I'm not worthy. It's that relationship that maybe has been broken or it's been completely, it's just kind of dying or it's been completely ripped apart in your life that lets you know man, am I unlovable? For some of you, it's that position in life where maybe there is no relationship, even though it's been prayed for over and over and you've done everything that you can and it still hasn't happened and society once again tells you, you're just not lovable. And maybe some of you, it's coming to church and you don't have that great relationship with your kids and you kind of just look around at all the other perfect families that are coming to church and you're like, what did we do wrong? Because we go through life constantly with these social statuses that tell us where we rank and how we do. And everyone will tell us when it comes to human fears, there's one in the top five of almost every survey that's been done. And it is this, the fear of failure. Because we all do and we all don't do things in order to avoid failure, don't we? And I mean, failure can be a lot of things. Realizing you didn't, don't live the life that you've always wanted to live, not succeeding in your plans, maybe a sense of helplessness, or even the worst case scenario, you hit a kind of rock bottom. And in our church today, I promise you, we've all dealt with it, and many of us are dealing with it right now. And really, a fear of failure is that fear that paralyzes us where we are right now from moving forward, from stepping out and trying anything different. I remember when I was learning to fly for the first time, I was 17 years old in high school. I was getting my pilot's license. Yeah, that's me back in the day. And uh, after six hours of training, uh, we were taxiing back and the, my flight instructor, he hop, he's like, stop the plane. He hops out and he says, all right, it's your turn now. Wow, did I automatically have a sense of fear of failure running through my body? And uh, it didn't help that on the tail of the plane, he had a bumper sticker that said, salvation, don't leave earth without it. 
I mean, I was praying like crazy as I was taxing back on my own in this plane, 17 years old. And I can only count probably five times in my life where I really wish I would have packed an extra pair of ginch uh, for the day. But that was one of the days. Uh, but it was uh, an exhilarating experience. Uh, so today I want to try to pull the rug out from underneath this fear of failure. And my hope and prayer is, is that you'll walk out of here today discovering some courage, some hope, and refreshment in Christ. I came across this uh, funny rejection letter. Uh, it was written to Professor Millington from Chris Jensen. Uh, and it has to be true because I found it online. Uh, uh, he applied for a position, a professorship at Whitson University. He was denied the position. And so after hearing about this denial, he wrote back to the chair of the search committee, Professor Millington, and this is what the letter says. Uh, Dear Professor Millington, thank you for your letter of March 16th. After careful consideration, I regret to inform you that I am unable to accept your refusal to offer me an assistant professor position in your department. This year, I've been particularly fortunate in receiving an unusually large number of rejection letters. With such a varied and promising field of candidates, it is impossible for me to accept all refusals. Despite Whitson's outstanding qualifications and previous experience in rejecting applicants, I find that your rejection does not meet my needs at this time. Therefore, I will assume the position of assistant professor in your department this August. I look forward to seeing you then. Best of luck in rejecting future applicants. Sincerely, Chris Jensen. <laughs> Isn't that great? This guy's had so much failure and rejection in his life, he just can't take any more. And I know it's a little bit humorous, but that's the mindset that I want for us today, that whatever failure is on your screen in life today, that you would be able to look at it and say, I refuse to accept that failure, and I'll tell you the reason why. And to do that, I want to come to Scripture and discover how to overcome this fear of failure in our lives. And so uh, to start with, uh, I want to look at a verse from 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 7. And this is what Paul writes. And friends, this is the word of God. Paul says, For God has given us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Fear does not come from God. God wants to replace our fear with faith. But the reality is every single one of us, at one point in our life or another, fears failure, which causes anxiety and worry in our lives. But the good is, news is, is that through God, though God has not given us a spirit of fear, and he will help us overcome this. And so as we talk about the fear of failure, I want to start with understanding that giving into this fear can actually cost us a lot more uh, than most of us realize. Uh, Jesus told a parable in uh, Matthew chapter 25, and it helps illustrate the cost of the fear of failure. And he tells this story about a guy who went on a journey and he calls three people into his office, and he, to one of the guys, he gives five talents, to another guy, he gives two talents, and to the last guy, he gives one talent. And he basically is saying, hey guys, I'm going to be gone for a little bit, I want you guys to take care of my business. And so the first two guys, evidently, they'd kind of overcome the fear of failure in this area of their life, so they went out and they took some risks, and they invested their initial uh, money that they had gotten, and they doubled the initial principal. Uh, but the third guy, he was afraid of failure. And like many of us, he was paralyzed with fear. And instead of taking a venture of faith, instead of taking a, a risk of faith, he played it safe, like a lot of us do. He buried his talent. When the master came back, here's where the story goes. Verse 24. He also had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was what? Afraid. afraid. I was afraid. I was afraid of failing. I might let you down. I might not succeed. 
I was afraid, so I went and hid your talent in the ground. And you can almost sense a pride in what he did. He said, here you have what is yours. How'd the master reply? Did he say, good job, buddy? Wow, you didn't risk anything. I'm so proud of you for guarding what you did, what I gave you. No, the opposite. What does he say? You wicked and slothful servant. Take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. The fear of failure paralyzed this guy. And that which he guarded, he ended up losing in the end. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but instead of power. There's a great parable story, kind of illustrates a good point. Uh, there was an experimenter, they, take, they took five monkeys and they put them in a cage. Uh, in the cage was a ladder. Uh, above the ladder was hanging a bunch of bananas. And so anytime one of the monkeys would try to climb the ladder to go after the bananas, the experimenter would spray all of the monkeys with really icy cold water. And so uh, they would, the monkey would try it again. They would try to go up the ladder. All the monkeys would get sprayed. Pretty soon, any monkey that tried to get on the ladder to go up, the other monkeys would grab him, rip him down, and start beating him up. Okay, because they didn't want to get sprayed with icy water. So eventually, nobody wanted to go up the ladder anymore. Well, then the experimenters took one of the monkeys and took him out and brought in a new monkey. Guess what that new monkey did? He went up, the, he started going up the ladder. All the other monkeys grabbed him, threw him down, started beating him up. And he tried it again. They started beating him up. And pretty soon, he just understood this was the new social norm. He didn't know why they were taking him off the ladder because he'd never been sprayed before. But he just eventually said, okay, I better not go up the ladder. So eventually they kept repeating this, bringing in new monkeys after another. Eventually, at the end, they were all new five monkeys. And they had all learned nobody go up that ladder to get the bananas, even though none of them knew why. None of them had been sprayed with icy water ever. You see, whenever God calls you to step out in faith to do something, to climb something, to do something amazing for him, I guarantee you there's going to be people that are going to come along inside you, generally people that you love, and they're going to come alongside and they're going to say things like, hey, it's not going to work. Don't do that. You failed last time. I tried that. It failed. That's a stupid idea. You might as well give up. Please don't let someone else's failure or someone else's fear make a monkey out of you. Huh? <laughs> Don't let someone else's past or their hesitation or their worry talk you out of doing something you know God wants you to do. And that's exactly where some of you maybe are living at this moment. You know there's something God is asking you to do and you're afraid it's not going to work out. God has not given you a spirit of fear. So what is it for you? today. And so today, as we examine God's word, we're going to discover together three principles that will empower you to overcome this fear of failure. So the first principle is this. You will fail. You will fail. Unless you are Jesus or you don't do anything in life, you will fail. Embrace it as part of the process of faith development. For James says this in James chapter three, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble at what he says, 
he is a perfect man. So we will all stumble. We're all going to fail. And even if you're not, and I think when we think about failure, we think, well, man, shouldn't we just avoid failure at all costs? But actually failure can be a, a path to success. If you're not failing in your life, then you're probably not really making much of an impact in the people's lives around you. You're sort of, well, I don't want to fail, so I'm not really going to take a chance. Friends, you will fail. And when you do fail, allow yourself to feel the disappointment, but not the disapproval. God still loves you. Just because you failed at something doesn't mean God loves you any less. Just because you failed in your finances doesn't mean you're a failure. Just because you have a relationship that went sour doesn't mean you're a failure. Failure is an event, not a person. Failure is an event, not a person. And I'm going to argue, not only will you fail, but there are times when God will allow you to fail because he knows that through failure, he can do something in you and through our world that he could not do otherwise. So I'm going to give us an illustration from the Bible of what that looks like. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 33 and kind of do a flyby over to chapter 16. But before uh, we get into the story, I need to give you a little bit of background because I want you to know who the key players are in this story and, uh, and a little bit of background to help this kind of story really jump out for us in terms of all of its implications and all that it that it wants to teach us. So in this story, there's two key players. There's a guy by the name of Barnabas and the guy by the name of Paul, okay? And there's, these are two great guys and they find themselves in one, one big mess. And another guy in this story is going to be a guy by the name of John Mark. Now you guys don't know him as John Mark. Uh, we know him as Mark. He's a guy who wrote the gospel of Mark in our New Testament. Uh, he was obviously greatly used by God, but in this typical story that we're going to look at. Uh, he's a young guy, and he's just kind of beginning uh, his journey. Now, Barnabas, as we know, he's a great encourager in the Bible. Um, he's a great guy, and Paul's obviously a great guy. He's an apostle, and uh, he's written most of the New Testament. He's kind of a hard-driven guy. He goes and gets things done. Well, here's what happens in the story. It begins with this guy by the name of Saul, who we now know as Paul. His name switched later on. So Saul... Uh, was a devout Jew. And whatever this guy was into, he was sold out. He was all in all the time. Uh, and he was a Jew who rejected that Jesus was the Messiah. And he was wanting to make sure that this new Christian cult didn't get any traction. And so uh, he started to, he wanted to squash it however he could. So he was able to get some papers that gave him some authority religiously to go into these towns and begin to persecute Christians or people who called themselves followers of Jesus. And so he would get some of them thrown in jail. Actually, he was part of some of their deaths, some of the martyrdom of some of these people as well. So he very quickly became the quintessentially enemy of Jesus in this time. And Christians would hear that Saul is coming to town and they would quake. They would actually go hide in their basements. They would get out of town. They would do whatever it takes to get out of there because this wasn't run-of-the-mill persecution when, Paul sh when Saul showed up. I mean, this was serious, heavy stuff that was going to happen. So when all of this is going on, one day, Saul is walking on the road to Damascus. All of a sudden, a blinding light comes out of nowhere and blinds him, and Saul hears this audible voice, and it's the voice of God himself. And God says, hey, dude, it's in the Greek. You got to look it up. <laughs> hey, dude, what are you doing? 
you're fighting against me. And Saul's like, what do you mean I'm fighting against you? Well, the Lord tells him, long story short, basically, these Christians are my followers. And at that point, Saul is converted to becoming a follower of Jesus by God himself. And he gets this very special mission from God, as we later know. But now put yourself back into the story in this history when it just happens. This guy who's been your arch enemy, now he says he's one of you. Do you give him the names of all the people on your team? <laughs> Probably not. Do you trust him? No way. I mean, this guy's got blood on his hands and he's running around saying, hey, I've been converted. I'm one of you now. And even if you think this guy's changed, man, this guy's a wacko. Keep him as far as ways you can. You don't know what's going to happen next or where he's going to go next. Well, along the way, he runs into this guy by the name of Barnabas. And Barnabas is that great encourager in the Bible. And so what does Barnabas do? Well, Barnabas believes in Paul when no one else will. And so Barnabas actually goes another step and he brings him to the group and he says, hey, I believe this guy and I'm going to take responsibility for him. And Barnabas kind of becomes Paul's sponsor. And he says to everyone, okay, we'll give you a break. And of course, Paul then begins to use his gifts and show the skills that God's given him, and he quickly rises in the church to become one of the, the great teachers in the church. Well, they're having a prayer meeting one day, and the Lord comes and says, hey, you need to pick two of these guys to go out on this big missionary journey to tell everybody about who Jesus is. And so the Spirit picks these two guys, Barnabas and Paul. And so here's what I want you to catch. It's very important to the story. When they go out on this first trip, it's Barnabas and Paul. That's how everybody sees it. That's how everybody calls it. Hey, Barnabas and Paul are coming to town. Barnabas and Paul are coming to town because Barnabas was the big dog. He was the one that everyone knew. And Paul was really this kind of rising star, this young guy just starting out. Well, Barnabas kind of showing what heart he has, he goes out to these various ministry things and he starts to allow Paul to speak. Paul's a little annoyed at first, but eventually Paul comes and he knocks it out of the park at one of these cities preaching. And from that point on, everyone now sees it as Paul and Barnabas. So everyone now is saying, hey, Paul and Barnabas is coming to town. Now let's pause there for a moment. Do you see a problem with that? In our human nature, ego, <laughs> You know, a lot of people like to be top dog, don't they? Well, good old Barnabas, it didn't matter to him. He understood it was all about God. It wasn't about him. And so he continued to go along with this Paul and Barnabas. He empowered Paul even more. He was just happy to be a part of what God was doing. So he continued to do it. Now, if you step back, we kind of get the heart of who Barnabas was, right? But we also understand that if, imagine if you were Paul, do you think that this man would have a very special place in your heart? That he went to bat for you, he's empowered you, he's encouraging you all along this way. Well, there's one more thing before we read the passage to tell you about. Paul and Barnabas take with them on this missionary journey a young kid named John Mark, who I mentioned earlier. Well, when you went with Paul and Barnabas on one of these tours, you're in for a scary time, right? I mean, there's chances you're going to get beat up, thrown in jail, all thing, kinds of things could happen. Well, about the third city, this guy by the name of John Mark, who had gone as their helper, he was kind of their gopher, go get this, go get this, do all these things. He decided, you know what? Man, I'm tired of this. This is tough work. This is more than I'm capable of. So he left them in the middle of the journey, and he goes back home. Now, with all of that as a background... 
Let's pick up the story in Acts chapter 15, verse 33. After they'd spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch. So they're on one of these tours, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So Paul is saying, hey, let's retrace our steps, all this stuff that we did. Let's go and strengthen these churches and see what's going on and hear all these great stories. Now Barnabas, verse 37, wanted to take with them a guy by the name of John, John called Mark. Now, that makes sense when we understand Barnabas, right? Barnabas is that guy who's like looking at John and Mark. He's like, you know what? He was young back then. Uh, let's give him a second chance. Let's, let's help him out. Well, the hard-driving apostle Paul, he sees it differently, doesn't he? Verse 38, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had what? Withdrawn or had deserted them. And I'm sure Barnabas is saying, you know what? I'm just sure he wasn't up to it. He was young. He didn't know the ways of the world. Like, he's, he's ready now. And Paul says, no, 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 let's call a spade a spade. This guy deserted us. He left us. So we got a little bit of tension here, and Paul is annoyed because he believes this guy left them when they really needed him. Verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement. And that Greek word for disagreement is like for the strongest of fights or battles. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been committed by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. You know what you've got right here? A fractured friendship by two of the best people in the Bible because they couldn't agree on who to take on the missionary journey. A little surprising, isn't it? Well, it gets even more surprising as we read on. So as they go on their journey, let's pick it up in Acts 16, verse 4. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance and decisions. Now, this is Paul and Silas because Barnabas and John Mark have gone off someplace else. They give these decisions for the people to obey that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith and they increased in numbers daily. And they, Paul and Silas, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So they're forbidden to speak in this province, which means they wanted to go there, right? Do you see that? I mean, if the Holy Spirit is keeping you from doing something, it implies that you were trying to do it. So we've got an interesting, interesting thing happening. Paul's already had a massive blow up over this John Mark person with his good friend Barnabas. And now we've got Paul trying to figure out where to go and he blows it. He doesn't know what to do. And then verse seven, when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Kind of sounds like strike two. He doesn't know where he's going. He's blowing it everywhere. So passing by Mysia, they went to, down to Troas and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So you get the picture here. They have no idea where to go. Now, when it comes to following Jesus, it kind of blows me away that you have the kind of quality of people, Barnabas and Paul, that they are confused about who to put on the team and they're confused about where they're supposed to go. Now, I don't know about you, but I find incredible, incredible comfort in the fact that guys like this can mess things up. And by the way, 
The Macedonia thing, it didn't even work out all that well. Because in Paul's mind, he wanted to go retrace his steps and actually encourage all of these places that he had been and hear all of the great stories of what God was doing. That's why they went on the trip in the first place. But now they end up going to a region they've never been before. And all of this special stuff was supposed to happen, but it didn't. And from his viewpoint, everything was a complete bomb. You see, he goes to a little town in Philippi, and they couldn't find many Jewish believers there. They always looked for the Jewish believers first because they wanted to teach them about Jesus being the true Messiah. Well, all they could find was a little group down by this little stream, and lo and behold, a bunch of things happen, and he ends up in jail, and he ends up getting kicked out of town. So Paul has to flee, and they leave behind this tiny little group that really nothing really happened with them. Then he runs over to a little town called Thessalonica, and he goes there, and the people who pursued him in Philippi, they pursue him there, and they chase him out of town, and so he had to leave there. Then he goes over to a little town called Berea, and they're pretty open, but he's pursued again. So finally, the rest of the guys, they say, hey, Paul, you just need to get out of Macedonia. You need to leave. We'll stay. We'll clean up this mess. We'll meet you later on. Total failure. Not at all what he thought he was going to do. He thought he was going to strengthen. Instead, he goes to a new area. Then he thinks, okay, I'll plant some churches and everything. He plants it bombs. Would you agree things are not working out too well for this guy? And yet, knowing what we know now, the whole picture is pretty different, wasn't it? You see, out of that little town called Philippi where he started that little loser church, you can have a book in your Bible called yeah, Philippians. Very good. Move to the front of the class, Greg. That's great. <laughs> Philippians. They were his number one donor team. That's what Philippians is written about. These people were sponsoring him, and he's thanking them for all of the wonder resources they gave him to do ministry. And that little town called Thessalonica, you have two little books in your Bible called First and Second Thessalonians. So God had a completely different picture. But I bet you along the way, Paul just thought, man, I'm a total failure. But he had no idea in the background what God was doing. So just because you fail at something does not mean that you are a failure. You will fail. It is part of growing towards what God is doing in this world. So don't be afraid of it. Paul then writes in Romans chapter 5, these great words, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. When we hit the wall, when we fail, when we have problems and roadblocks, we can rejoice because the Bible says some good things are going to happen. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Hope does not put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. They are doing something in us, so don't fear it. So encouraging principle number one, you will fail. But principle two, this one is more encouraging. You can overcome. You can overcome by the power of the Spirit of God. You can overcome. I love Proverbs chapter 24. The Bible says, for the righteous falls, how many times? Seven times. And they do what? Rise again. When you fall down, what do we do? Rise again. When you get knocked down, what do you do? Get up again. We get knocked down. Get up again. <laughs> you know that song, right? <laughs> Alexander White, 
Uh, he was a minister in the 19th century, and uh, this is what he once said about Christians, and I just, I love it. They fall down, they get up, they fall down, they get up, all the way to heaven. Isn't that a great picture? So let's redefine failure. Let's say failure is simply the price that we pay on the path to God's success. That's what failure is. It is the price that we pay on the path to God's success. There's a great story in the book uh, Art and Fear by uh, David Bales. Uh, it's about a, a guy who taught a pottery class. And then every year, early in his class, he would do this assignment uh, that would help his students, not only in what we're talking about, uh, but in so many areas. And so what he would do is he would divide the class at the beginning of the class time right in half. So right here, we'd split it right in half. And he would look at the side of the class and he says, okay, over the next three hours, I want you guys to focus on quantity, okay? You're going to make 300 clay pots, all right? Three hours, 100 clay pots, all right? He'd then come to this side of the class and he said, you guys are going to focus on quality. In the next three hours, I want you to make one clay pot. That's all I want you to make. Three hours, one clay pot. On your marks, get set, go. And off they would go. And every year, every class, every time they would do this, same thing would happen. The people that would focus on um, quality our quantity over here, they would make about 100. And over here, they would focus on quality, they would make one. And every single year, on this side of the room, there would be dozens of pots that would be better than this side, every single year. And the students would ask, why is that? And the professor would say, well, one of the biggest mistakes that we make is we overanalyze. We overprepare. We're hesitant to risk failure. And then he would talk to this group and he would say, you know what? The first pot that you made, you know, was really ugly. I saw it, Jack. I saw it. It was really ugly. Second pot that you made, it was ugly too. Your third pot, pretty ugly. But eventually, your pots got better and better and better. Because you were learning as you were doing it. Before long, you were learning so much that the quality of your work improved. And you succeeded because you didn't fear failure. Interesting. So he said, get in there. You got to mix it up. Let some things happen. Don't be afraid of failing. Just because you fail at something, don't give up. You can overcome. Because Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not what? Give up. If we do not give up. It doesn't matter what happens to you. It matters what happens in you. And God may be doing something in you to prepare you for what he wants to do through you by the power of his Holy Spirit. So no matter how much we avoid risk and give in to fear, nothing can change what God is doing and what he will do when he continues to break in to this world. The only thing is we might miss out on it if we don't risk. So number one, you will fail. Number two, you can overcome, and principle number three, don't, don't miss this. In order to please God, you must take a risk of faith. You cannot please God without risking faith. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, without what? Faith. It is impossible to please God 
without faith, without stepping out of your comfort zone into the land of faith, it's completely and absolutely impossible to please God. You cannot play it safe and please God. You cannot bury your talent and please God. And for some of you, this is your greatest fear, failure. And if you let it overtake you, if it will cost you more than you can ever imagine. And your greatest fear, failure, will actually lead to your greatest pain, which is regret. Because you never want to wake, wake up and say, well, what should have been? What could have been? What would have been if I wasn't afraid to try? Because you see at the end of our lives, we will regret opportunities missed a lot more than the mistakes that we will make. And according to a study of two Cornell uh, sociologists, Tom Gilovich and Vicki Medvek, over the short term, they say, we tend to regret actions. But over the long haul, we tend to regret inaction. Their study found that over the course of an average week, seven days, action regrets outnumbered inaction regrets 53% to 47%. But when people looked at their whole lives, 70, 80 years as a whole, inaction regrets outnumbered action regrets 84% to 16%. The inaction of taking faith risks was the biggest regrets. And in Acts 5, Peter, he's out preaching. He gets beat up and thrown in jail. He gets out. He starts preaching again. He gets beat up and thrown in back in jail. And the Sanhedrin are saying, hey, we've got to stop this guy. They're out of control. And a very wise Pharisee stepped forward and he gives this speech in Acts chapter 15, or Acts chapter 5, verse 38. He said, this is Gamaliel. So in the present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So take a step of faith. And if, it's in your own, and if this is your own idea, you're going to sink. But God will help you overcome. But if it's of God, there is no one in the world that will be able to stop you. You see, every life of a follower of Jesus is marked by windows of opportunity that demand us to take radical steps of faith in order to follow Christ and fulfill his purpose in our lives and in this world. And what makes that step radical is generally they require significant risk. And there are times where God will bring an opportunity and it may be in your marriage. It may be in your career. It may be in your finances. It may be in a relationship that you're in. And he's going to say, in order to obey me, in order to follow me, this is what you need to do in this situation. And in those moments, and I've experienced it as well, we get that sinking feeling, this fear of stepping into the unfamiliar. We worry that we could experience a major fail. But where there is no risk, there is no faith. And where there is no faith, there is no power. Faith always means risk. Everything in life is a risk. Uh, even Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse 9 where he says, When you work in a quarry, stones might fall and crush you. When you chop wood, there's a danger with each stroke of your axe. Such are the risks of life. There's nothing that we can do that doesn't have some element of risk. 
And it's because that's what faith is. I remember when our girls were a little smaller, uh, they'd stand on the stairs and they'd progressively go up as high as they could. And they would just jump like spider girl uh, down the stairs and I would catch them. And I was always wondering like, why in the world are these girls jumping to their death? It's because they know I'm going to catch them. And some of you, God is calling you to take that kind of leap of faith. It's time to leap into the land of faith and know and believe with all your heart that if God is in on this, there is no power that will stop what he wants to do in and through you. So what faith risk is God calling you to take that you cannot play safe and please God? What is God leading you to take a step of obedience as you follow him this week? That you will trust him in. That your heavenly father will catch you when you take that leap. Because friends, you will fail. But through the power of God, you can overcome. And without faith, you cannot please your heavenly father. Let's pray. Spirit of God, you're, you're present in every breath, every fall and rise of our chest. Might we slow ourselves enough to notice you in these moments, to experience the gift and life and, and the presence of Christ in every breath. And Father, where there are some here who have listened to accusation and they've begun to believe we are what has been told us. Where we have focused on what we are not and we've lost your imagination for what we could become. Where we've given credence to the idea that we are less than we need to be loved. Oh, Father, would you defend us? Would you advocate for us? Would you remind us today of how deeply loved we are by you? And Father, once that sinks in, might we actually begin to live from this place of welcome and embrace? And might it change us and transform us and send us into this world, much like these people taking the risk going to Costa Rica, with renewed mission and fierce compassion for those in our world. So Father, help us to take a leap of faith, to risk for your kingdom. God, give us the courage to step into the pathway of obedience because you love us and you long for us to experience the abundance of life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.